welcome to worship on this Mother's Day weekend. We are so glad that you joined us, either online or on the podcast today. If you're tuning in for the very first time, my name is Rod, and I'm a pastor here at Redeemer, and it's my pleasure to be with you. I wish I could connect with each of you in a more personal way, but since that is impossible just yet, I want you to know how much we appreciate you taking time out of your day to share God's Word together. Here at Redeemer, we try to do our best to make it easy for you to discover what God is like. There are plenty of ideas out there in our culture about God, but we learn best what He's like and how God relates to us by studying the Bible, God's Word, together. These are difficult days. I can't, uh, we can't be with family and friends. We can't socialize at the park or at a restaurant. There are lots of disruptions in our daily life. This is especially true today on Mother's Day. Perhaps like a lot of you, my own mother is in a care facility and doesn't fully understand why we can't come and see her. Some of you know what that feels like as well. But the God we serve is loving and kind and likes us and cares about us. Our goal here at Redeemer is to help strengthen you during these days when we're quarantined. Check out our resources for children and youth each week. Our staff is working hard to provide for the whole, something for the whole family. Here in worship, we are in the final two weeks of this current teaching series on the Apostles' Creed called I Believe In. We're learning from the statement of belief that was developed by the early Christian church, something about the nature of God, about who Jesus is, and next week about the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Today the message is simply entitled, Who is Jesus? And the scripture lesson is found in the New Testament book of Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Follow with me for a moment of prayer. God, we thank you for the gift of your word. Now, as we think on who Jesus is today, open our hearts and our minds to hear you speak to us. And we pray it in the name of Christ, our Lord. Amen. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Who is Jesus Christ? All, of all the questions that we might ask people today, none is more important than this. It is no exaggeration to say that this is the central question of history and the most important issue anyone will ever face. Who is Jesus Christ? Where did he come from? Why did he come? And what difference does his coming make in our life? In the end, every person must deal with Jesus Christ. No one will escape him. We can't avoid that question or delay it or postpone it or stonewall it forever. We can't pretend that we didn't hear it. But sooner or later, each one of us must answer the question, who is Jesus? It's certainly not a new question. It's as old as the coming of Christ to earth. Once, when Jesus took his disciples on a retreat to a place called Caesarea Philippi, he asked them, who do people say that I am? And they offered four different responses. 
Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Some Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Even when Jesus walked on this earth, people were confused about his true identity. Across the centuries, the discussion has continued to this very day. Visit any internet religious chat room and you'll find a bewildering array of opinions regarding Jesus. Here are some contemporary answers to the question, who is Jesus Christ? He's a good man. He's the son of God. He's a prophet. He was a Galilean rabbi, a teacher of God's law, the embodiment of God's love, a reincarnated spirit master, the ultimate revolutionary, the Messiah of Israel, savior, first century wise man, a man just like any other man or woman, king of kings, a misunderstood teacher, Lord of the universe, a deluded religious leader, son of man, a fabrication of the early church. So the big question is, what answer will you give? Before you answer, let me say that we can find people today who will give every one of those possible answers. Does that surprise you? It shouldn't. It said that it is said that in the days before Elvis Presley died, he had been reading a book called The Many Faces of Jesus. That title stands as a fitting symbol of the confusion surrounding Jesus, even in our own time. 2,000 years have passed, and we still wonder about this man called Jesus. That takes us back to Caesarea Philippi. After Jesus asked for the opinions of others, he turned to his disciples and asked them for their answer. But who do you say that I am? And in the end, each of us faces that same question. We can't get away with quoting the opinions of others. We have to make up our own mind. So let's go back to the original question. Who is Jesus Christ? And how does our answer stack up with the Bible? That's an important second question because it's not enough to say, I believe in Jesus. Millions of people claim to believe in Jesus and don't have a clue about what the Bible says about him. So which Jesus do you believe in? Thankfully, we don't have to wonder who Jesus is. For 2,000 years, Christians have affirmed their faith in Jesus with the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. With this phrase, we enter into the second major section of the Creed. The Apostles' Creed itself, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, is Trinitarian with a section devoted to the Father, a section to the Son, and a final section to the Holy Spirit. Of the 110 words in the Creed, 70 occur in this section related to Jesus Christ. That tells us something important. The Christian faith is all about Jesus. He is the heart, he is the core, he is the touchstone of all that we believe. 
We can be mistaken about some secondary issues and still be a Christian. But if we are wrong about Jesus, we are wrong in the worst possible place. Our faith in Jesus must be more than just an emotional experience of having Jesus in my heart. Our faith must rest on the revealed truth about Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. If we take this phrase from the Apostles' Creed and examine it, we can see that it contains four statements. I believe in Jesus. I believe he is the Christ. I believe it is God, he is God's only Son. And I believe he is the Lord. Now, each of these statements deserves closer examination. Author J.I. Packer writes that when the creed calls God the maker of heaven and earth, it parts company with Hinduism and, by extension, all other Eastern religions. When it declares that Jesus is the Christ, God, God's only Son, our Lord, it parts company with Islam and Judaism. So this claim for Jesus makes Christianity truly unique. The early church commonly used titles or symbols to describe their faith. Sometimes they used the familiar symbol of the fish, which is in Greek, ichthus. Now those letters were an acrostic for four of the words found in the phrase of the creed. The letter I is the first letter of Jesus. In Greek. The letter X is the first letter of Christ in the Greek. The letters TH stand for the first letter of God in Greek. The letter U is the first letter of Son in Greek. And the letter S is the first letter of Savior in the Greek language. So the, the word ichthus and the fish symbol stood and for, as a shorthand for Jesus Christ, God's Son, our Savior. Who is Jesus Christ? The Apostles' Creed gives us four answers. First of all, He is our Savior. The name Jesus means God saves. Scholars tell us that it was actually a very common name among Jews in the first century. There were at least ten other men named Jesus who lived in Judea about the same time as our Lord. There were at least five Jewish high priests who were named Jesus. The name itself is the Greek version of the Old Testament word Joshua. It speaks of the fact that God has entered the human race on a rescue mission from heaven. And that's why the angel said to Joseph, you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. When you say we believe in Jesus, we mean that he was fully human, and yet he was also divine. A man like us, yet somehow uh, who possessed the very attributes of God himself. He was the God-man, and he came to save us from our sin. Secondly, he is the Christ. Now let's get rid of one idea very quickly. Christ is not Jesus' last name. He didn't grow up in the Christ family. Christ is not a family name, it's a title. To be precise, we should call him Jesus the Christ. 
when we see our president on television, we know that president is not his first name, it's his title. The name of the office that he holds. In the same way, the term Christ describes one of Jesus' divinely appointed titles. The word Christ comes from the Greek word that itself comes from a Hebrew word that means anointed one. We often translate it as the Messiah. In the Old Testament, prophets, priests, and kings were anointed when they, were, when they formally began their service to God. The anointing was assigned and God called them to this position. To call Jesus the Christ means that he is the one God promised to send to deliver Israel and to bring salvation to the world. At Christmas time, when we sing, Come Thou Long-Expected Jesus, we are referring to this very truth. A ton of connected history flows from Genesis to Revelation, spanning thousands of years and hundreds of generations. And those who believe the Bible have long argued that although it contains 66 books, written by many different people over a period of about 1,500 years, it has but one message, God's plan to bring salvation to the world through Jesus Christ. In one way or another, everything in the Bible fits around that great theme. In the Old Testament, the theme is anticipation. In the Gospels, it is incarnation. In the Acts of the Apostles, it is proclamation. In the Epistles, explanation. And in Revelation, consummation. The Old Testament says he is coming. The Gospel says he is here. The Book of Acts says he has come. The Epistles tell us he is the Lord. Revelation says he is coming again. The Old Testament contains many promises of his coming. He will be the seed of the woman. He will be a descendant of Shem. He will be a descendant of Abraham. He will be a descendant of Isaac. He will be a descendant of Jacob. He will come from the tribe of Judah. He will be a descendant of David. He will be born of a virgin, and he will be born in Bethlehem. Who would fit all of these qualifications? Many people could fit perhaps the first few on the list, but only one person in history fits all of them, and it's Jesus Christ. One of the points that separates our brothers and sisters in the Jewish tradition from Christianity is that we believe the one for whom we waited has already come. He came 2,000 years ago. He is our Messiah, and his name is Jesus Christ. To say that Jesus is the Christ means that he is the one whom God sent to bring us to God. Now third, he is God's only son. This phrase speaks of his relationship to the Father. The little word only tells us something crucial about our Lord. John 3.16 says, For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. 
What does the phrase one and only mean? Well, it comes from the Greek word uh, monogenous. The mono part means one or only, as in the word monologue, one person speaking to many people. The genus part is related to the English words gene or genetics or gender. When both parts are put together, one and only means absolutely unique, one of a kind. There can never be another of the same kind. It is a word that stresses the absolute unique nature of Jesus. Because the Son shares the same nature as the Father, Jesus could say, the Father and I are one, in John chapter 10, verse 30. His Jewish hearers understood him to be claiming equality with God, but to call Jesus God's only Son means that he shares the same essential nature as God himself. From this truth comes the doctrine of the Trinity. One God is eternally existing in three divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One of the early church fathers explained the relationship between the Father and the Son this way. He said, the spring is not the stream, and the stream is not the spring, and yet the same water flows through both. Even so, the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father, but they share the same divine nature. Another one of the historic creeds, the Nicene Creed, says it very succinctly when it calls Jesus Christ very God of very God. He is not similar to God. To call him God's only Son means uh, he is God, the Son and thus worthy of the same worship, the same adoration, the same praise and reverence that we would give to God the Father. Now many people today, including some theologians and many progressive Christians, fight against this truth. They want a Christ who is somehow divine, but is not truly God. They want a Jesus who's a good role model, but they don't want him to be their God. A good man, yes. The Son of God from heaven? Absolutely not. But that's not possible if we take the Bible seriously. Author C.S. Lewis explained it uh, this way. He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great teacher, a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil from hell. Lewis goes on to say, you must make a choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him or kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. 
Now, fourth, he is our Lord. The final title given to Jesus relates to you and to me. He is our Lord. The Greek word here is kurios. This word occurs many times in the New Testament. It was also common in the Roman Empire. Its basic meaning is absolute ruler. To call Jesus Lord means that he is sovereign over the entire universe. And he has the right of sovereign rule over you and me. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Notice how simple that phrase is. Jesus is Lord. To confess with the mouth means that more than simply saying the words. It means to agree from the heart that we, what we believe, uh, that we believe what we're saying. Now, to, in order to understand this a little better, we need a bit of background on how the Romans ruled their vast empire. Because the empire stretched from Europe into the Middle East and across the northern coast of Africa, it encompassed many provinces and thus included many different religions. Scholars speak of the mystery religions that were found in parts of the empire, and each of these various religions had its own code of conduct, its own sacred scriptures, its own pattern of worship, form of sacrifice, or uh, sacred rites, or priesthood, and so on. And because these religions tended to keep people pacified, the Romans left them alone as much as possible. Rome required only that taxes be paid, and that everyone was required to say, Caesar is Lord. That's all. Just three simple words. Caesar is Lord. And then they could go about their own business. Now, to affirm that Caesar was sovereign and then follow whatever religion suited you was okay with the Romans. For many people in the empire, there was no big burden to do that. But Christians steadfastly refused to say Caesar is Lord. They simply wouldn't do it. How could they say Caesar is Lord when their faith taught them that Jesus is Lord? They could not, and they would not deny Christ. And that's why during the days of persecution, Christians were slaughtered. They were murdered by the thousands. They were crucified. They were burned at the stake. They were run through with a sword. They were thrown to wild animals. This was the great dividing line that Christians would not cross. Chuck Colson writes that in the first century, if you stood in public, and cried out, Jesus is God, no one would be upset. But if you shouted, Jesus is Lord, you would start a riot. Now let's be clear about this. Rome did not persecute Christians because they believed in the deity of Christ, or that Jesus was the promised Messiah, or that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. Rome did not kill Christians because they said Jesus was the only way of salvation. Those were religious beliefs that did not threaten the empire. 
But when Christians declare that Jesus is our Lord and there is no other, that was a direct attack on Caesar worship, and it was punishable by death. And that's why the Lordship of Christ matters so much. To call him Lord means that we surrender all we have, and we follow him gladly wherever he leads, whatever that cost may be. Let's return to our original question for a moment. Who is Jesus Christ? As this study makes clear, halfway answers will not do. Four strong statements declare who Jesus is. He is the Savior. He is the Messiah. He is God's only Son. And He is our Lord. All of this is biblical. And it's historic. And it's true. This reflects what the Bible says, what the church has always taught, and what is, in fact, true about Jesus Christ. I know that it's not popular to make such dogmatic statements, especially in the culture today. Most people, even some Christians, prefer not to emphasize the defining issues of the Christian faith. It's certainly not politically correct to talk about Jesus in these terms. When we say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, we are declaring to the world that this is what we firmly believe, and this is what we hold dear in the care, in the care of our hearts and our minds. We confess this to be true without regard to what other people say or what they believe, and we do it regardless of the opposition that may come our way. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, the Apostle Paul says this about Jesus. He says, therefore God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God has given Jesus the name above all other names. God has ordained that one day his son will be universally recognized as the Lord of heaven and earth. A lot of people today still don't know who he is, but there is a day coming when that will change forever. And when that day finally arrives, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declared that Jesus Christ is Lord. All of creation will physically bow before the Son of God and acknowledge his Lordship. This will be universal. It will include all creatures, both on heaven, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that will include angels, saints in heaven, all those living on the earth, and dead, uh, the the dead who have already uh, passed from this earth. It will include demons and even Satan himself. No one will be left out. All creation will be included in this universal declaration that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
Now I want you to hear this truth. Jesus will have the last word. He will be vindicated before the entire universe. Even his enemies will bow before him. In the end, there will be no opposition that will stand against him. And this will be a universal confession. Not all will be saved, but all will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There are a lot of different religious beliefs in our world today, but in the end, it all comes down to Jesus. In the end, Jesus is the central issue of the human race, and each of us must one day give an account for what we have done with our Lord. Did we love him? Did we serve him as Savior and Lord? Or did we choose to go some other way? We must declare this, especially to those who don't want to hear it. Recently, I heard of a family member who said, in all seriousness, if you ever mention Jesus to me again, I will never speak to you. When such moments come, we need to respond with words something like this. I don't want to lose your friendship, but I want to tell you the truth. You were made by Jesus Christ. You owe your life to him. And one day you will stand before him as your judge. And sooner or later, every knee will bow and confess that he is Lord. You can bow before him today as your Savior, or you can face him one day as your judge. But you cannot escape him. The choice is yours. He is our Savior. He loves us. And he invites us to come to him. He gave himself for us. And today, the scripture says, is the day of salvation. Won't you come to him today? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. This is the Jesus of the Bible. This is the Christ that we worship today. This is the Jesus we call Savior and Lord. This is the true Christ of the Christian faith. There is no one like him, for he alone is God. He is God incarnate, God made flesh. His words have divine authority because they are the words of Almighty God. And one day the entire universe is going to bow down and worship him. We have no other Savior, and we follow no other Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you for all, that all we need can be found in Jesus. And I pray that we may decrease so that he may increase in all we think and say and do until the character of Jesus is formed in us. Thank you for all that you have done for us. Help us to trust you in all the circumstances of life. Draw close to us, abide in us, and enable us to bear fruit for your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name.